your weekly dose of bookish goodness, sharing our love of books and printed papers with the world. Most of the books will be quite old, some will be rare, but others will be new. All of them will be unusual or notable in some way. It's your way to visit the library without visiting the library. We will focus mainly on Britain and England, but not completely. Each adventure starts with a library find, but ends who knows where. Join us in the library with the roaring fire and the leather chairs. Cigars optional. Library Discoveries is available wherever you prefer to subscribe to your podcasts. Welcome to this episode of Library Discoveries, featuring 92 in the Shade by American novelist Thomas McGuane. Now, this book was found in Lambeth Library in the sale for books they've decommissioned for 10 pence. I got it on Ed Books, as so many people buy used books these days. And later on, Paul will look in more detail at the book as an object. But I really wanted to uh, extend this episode because for me, uh, Thomas McGrain is a bit of a hero. He is a very famous American novelist in America, and he is virtually unknown in Britain. I don't know anybody who knows of him, uh, although I do know people who have recommended Richard Brautigan to me, who he knew. And of course, he was a friend back in the day of Warren Zevon, who wrote Werewolves of London. So Tom, the guy in the early to mid-70s, was a bit of a desperado living out in the Florida Keys. And his early novels are very much uh, that kind of um, male character who is on the edges of society, maybe a few issues with drink and, of course, women. But later on, he settled in Montana, uh, in Livingston, really became known and really highly regarded for his work as a novelist and also as a nonfiction writer, covering such Hemingway-style pastimes as fishing. He has basically disappeared from the radar in Britain, but he has a famous past. That is where I want to start this episode, looking at the wider Tom McGuane. One of the things Tom did after he crashed his Porsche in Texas in the ice was to switch his career from being a novelist to becoming a screenwriter. And perhaps his best known movie that was made out of the dozen or so scripts that he wrote was a film called The Missouri Break, starring Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando. And for British ears, you might not know what The Missouri Breaks is. So it is a, a national monument or national park uh, along the Missouri River, which is itself famous for the Lewis and Clark expedition. And it was also famous for being the land passage, the land route to the Northwest Passage, which here in Britain is seen as a naval challenge because um, obviously not having settled the Midwest at this stage, we took ships along through Canada to find the Northwest Passage, which became uh, very highly prized as a naval challenge and led to books and films in recent years because the ships, particularly two of the ships, have been recently found, uh, the Terror and the Erebus, uh, and was made into a, a series uh, quite recently. Michael Palin also wrote a book about the Northwest Passage and about the terror, the ship. So for what we see as a naval challenge in America was a land challenge, and they travelled across Lewis and Clark, the Missouri River, and looking for effectively a route through to the west of America and the west coast. So the Missouri Breaks is, is a national park, and it's many people see it as the birthplace of Montana itself. 
And I have a link in the show notes for this episode, which looks at interactive history of the area. But essentially, as far as I can tell, a break is a type of mountain created when the Earth's crust literally breaks in two, resulting in sharp block-like cliffs. And these cliffs and mountains are a hallmark of Montana, especially along the Missouri River. That's what the Missouri Breaks is in real life. But for Tom, it was a Western movie, a script, which is a very subtle movie. And I think for modern Hollywood standards, it's a very slow and subtle movie. Probably wouldn't get made in this way today. It feels very much like an independent movie. And it has some perfectly timed comic moments. There's a bunch of desperados led by Jack Nicholson who are having trouble shifting the horses and cattle that they steal from various landowners in the area. And they decide that they would like to have a ranch which they can use effectively to fence these animals, so to make them look legitimate. Uh, They'll bring the animals they've stolen to their ranch, look after them for a bit, and then gradually sell them on at markets and, and smaller deals. But it's effectively a holding station for stolen animals. And one of them has the idea that to buy such a ranch, uh, they would need cash, of course, and the cash they would get could come from robbing a train. Eventually, they decide to try this. Jack Nicholson, as the leader of the group, uh, runs along the top of the train, gets to the mail compartment, which, of course, is full of not only letters, but valuable cash and gold and so on. He points a gun at the clerk and tells the clerk how to unpin the train, the carriage from the rest of the train. And as the clerk does this, of course, the carriage that they are in slows down and comes to a stop. Uh, Nicholson shoots the locks off the box, steals the money, says thank you to the clerk and leaps from the carriage. At which point the first really comic moment of the film kicks in because it turns out that they are stopped halfway along a valley on a wooden bridge. And uh, Nicholson almost falls to his death into the river below and he drops the money as he scrambles back into the carriage or back onto the bridge underneath the carriage. There's then a comic scene where his friends collect all the cash that's floating around in the river. They get the bag just as the locomotive returns to apprehend the villains. And they ride off into the sunset with the cash and they buy the ranch. So it's a really nice scene in a a really dark and serious movie. But there are these comic moments not least with Brando himself and his role, his his acting of this, um, the guy who is hired to find Nicholson and bring him to justice. Uh, Brando is seen as overacting, hamming it up quite late in his career. Nowadays, his portrayal of this General Lee uh, enforcer character is actually perfectly reasonable. And it's a very interesting character indeed. I really like the Brando character as a, a Nicholson his character will be recognisable from anybody who likes Cuckoo's Nest or The Shining. It's a very similar kind of role here. And I think essentially the Nicholson character, the Desperado, is the Tom McGuane character. And his dialogue is very clever and subtle. He pursues the daughter of the landowner, who I think reminds me of Catherine Earnshaw. She's very feisty and very lyrical in her first meeting with Nicholson when she demolishes all of the reasons for the death penalty. And of course, she doesn't know at the time that the hanging she recently saw was the hanging of one of Nicholson's close friends. Later on, uh, again, the comedy comes through where Nicholson is presumed dead after Brando drowns him in the river, uh, but Nicholson finds him in the bath. He's probably come to kill him, but it quickly becomes clear that he won't be doing that. And this scene reminds me of a scene in Panama, which is one of McGain's Florida novels, where 
the main character in Panama, Chet, tracks down a Hollywood agent and shouts to him in his shower in the hotel and demands that he leaves town. And this scene ends with uh, Chet punching the guy from the shower and the guy does leave town. But in the Missouri breaks, when he finds Nicholson finds Brando in the bath, he just doesn't have whatever it is that needs him to shoot the guy. And he ends up putting a bullet hole in the bath, which then leaks onto the floor. So what we find as we look at Tom's career, of which 92 in the Shade was his third novel before his screenwriting career started, we find Tom as a writer of two halves. His later work of nonfiction focuses on the apparently simple content life in Montana, but I think um, anybody who's worked with livestock or with nature as a farmer in any way would realise that there is darkness and tragedy very close to the surface. McGuane's early writing is a bit like Hunter S. Thompson. He's also compared with his friend uh, Jim Harrison to Hemingway. And the two of them knew Brautigan. And they've all written books about fishing and, and the Wild West. After university at Stanford, McGuane and his first wife, who people claim was related to Davy Crockett, they split their time between Florida Key West and Livingston in Montana. And this split life is a feature of many Americans. Uh, they all seem to have... Uh, you know, anybody of a certain standing in America seems to have a summer home and a winter home. That's certainly what a perception that we get from the movies and from my limited knowledge of some specific Americans. But this is a separation that you see in people like Stephen King, who was an alcoholic, a real hard liver early in his life. And he managed to somehow crawl through that, separate out his hard living horror writing style from his daily life, which is actually quite mundane. And I think Tom's uh, life mirrors that in many ways. And also um, looking at filmmakers I admire, like David Lynch, who says it's perfectly possible to put darkness, serial killers, crime into your work. And yet David Lynch, the man, is a very gentle, calm, placid creature. And I think Tom feels the same to me. And I think Tom realised that quite early in his career, that it was perfectly possible to write these crazy hard-living books about criminals and desperados and yet be quite calm and be the family man uh, in the day-to-day. And this is something that one of his friends, Warren Zevon, simply couldn't grasp or, or couldn't quite achieve in his own life. Uh, Warren never lost the wild persona. And I think that Tom's Panama novel, which is effectively a study of Warren Zevon and his friendship with Warren, really sounds a warning bell to all those young rogues who fail to tire of their own wildness. Tom did tire of it. He changed things around, perhaps as a result of crashing his Porsche in the ice. But it is difficult to overstate his achievements. He is one of the top order American writers, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, And he made a fortune from screenplays like Rancho Deluxe and Missouri Breaks, uh, even though these films have faded from British memories completely, apart from uh, perhaps Western fans. And although Tom was and is first and foremost a writer, he was keenly aware that very few, if anybody, really could make serious money from novels. Even in the 70s, it was hard. And he has a pet theory that all top novelists have rich wives, an interesting way to explore some of the happy few who did make money from novels, like Stephen King, who we've just mentioned. This theory, essentially that novelist was not a job, pushed him towards Hollywood, and he wrote a dozen or so screenplays that made him a fortune, even though only three were made. 
Any screenwriter will tell you that this is exceptionally good ratio, and there is a theory that screenwriters are only paid so well because most of their work never sees the light of day. Rewinding back to the earlier part of Tom's career, we have this book in front of me, 92 in the Shade, which was made, uh, effectively directed by Tom himself from his own screenplay. And the set of this movie would repay a whole episode on its own. The movie featured... Uh, an actress called Margot Kidder, who is only known to us in Britain as Lois Lane from the early Superman films in the 80s. Um, But she married Tom uh, twice. They married in 1975 and then remarried later on. And it was during this period that really Tom became very productive professionally as his personal life perhaps ran into difficulties. He crashed his Porsche, as we've mentioned. He became known as Captain Berserko, which is a a really cool name, I think, for those of us on the outside. And he was very prolific writing books and films uh, and remarrying Margot Kidder later in the decade. You know, a lot of people say that genius and greatness takes place near the edge of life, near the edge of sanity sometimes, perhaps. But Tom McGuane is unusual, I think, in being able to see that he was heading for the edge and changed course. Whereas comparing him to people like Hemingway and Hunter S. Thompson um, perhaps suggests that those people were not able to change course and their lives unraveled in various negative ways. But Tom McGuane did turn things around. He is living now in his 80s in Livingston, a town which he fictionalised as Dead Rock, which obviously is an antonym, you know, living, dead, rock, stone, to this day. Really, Tom deserves better recognition in the UK, which is, I think, one reason why I wanted to do this extended episode. And for those of you who are regular listeners, uh, you will know that we're soon to head over to Paul for a look at the book itself. But I just wanted to say hello to Anne McGuane, who is uh, still living in Florida and still very proud of her dad, as she should be. Hi, Anne, and thanks for listening. And now it's over to Paul. Thanks, Paul. So here we have 92 in the Shade by Tom McGuane, a British edition of the novel in hardback, which was uh, butchered by Lambeth Library in London and eventually sold, book sale stamped on the first page for 10p. It was £2.50 net in the 70s when it was brought out. It was brought out in, let me tell you in a second, 1974. And we learn that 92 in the Shade is Tom McGuane's third novel. Uh, He's become, by this stage, already one of America's best young novelists. As a front-page review in the New York Times book review expressed it, like Mailer and Pynchon, Thomas McGuane makes the page, the paragraph, the sentence itself a record of continuous imaginative activity, the capturing and organising of the bits and pieces a deteriorating culture throws off or up. In his early 30s, he is an important as well as a brilliant novelist and one of our most truthful recorders of a dreadful time. And this book is about Thomas Skelton, who returns to Florida's Key West after vague failures in Greater America, determined to become a guide for fishermen. He becomes the victim of an elaborate practical joke, played by a man called Nickel Dance, supreme guide of the Keys, whom Skelton admires inordinately. In revenge, Skelton burns Dance's boat to the waterline. And so it goes. 92 in the Shade is a short, tight, dense tale of the classic American confrontation between waste of time, waste of life and death on the one hand, and sublime mastery of a talent, gift, skill or trade on the other. In short, the subject is the heights and depths of human possibilities. And that review appeared in none less than The New Yorker. Jacket design is by Mon Mohan. 
and it's a really faded spine, faded cover, but it has a great photo of the long-haired uh, hoodlum in a nice way, Desperado Tom McGuane on the back cover. Loads of reviews for uh, 92 in the Shade on the back. So this book has been stamped somewhere. Here it is with the uh, Lambeth Public Library's blind stamp. This was published by Collins, St James's Place, London in 1974, and follows on from The Sporting Club and The Bushwhacked Piano. This book, therefore, is much before Panama, which is my favourite Tom McGuane novel, principally because it studies the friendship between Tom and Warren Zevon. Uh, first published in the UK in 74, but of course published earlier than that in America. And it's for Beck. This book is for Beck, for Beck, for Beck. Beck's a lucky girl. Man is excellently made and eagerly lives the kind of life that is being lived. A quote from Mikhail Zoshenko. And then we are into the book, which begins with something in italics, which I really like. And I think we are going to read this to you uh, because it introduces Skelton and uh, the, the key character of this book. Here we go. Nobody knows from sea to shining sea why we are having all this trouble with our republic. Riding home from Gainesville with four people, Thomas Skelton was in a globe of his own hallucinatory despair, a little blown away, it is true, but nothing quite as serious as that sense of internal collapse and loss, almost of armature that made it increasingly difficult to so much as sit up straight. Skelton, two men, two women, wound up in a white clapboard hotel near Homestead, frequented by citrus pickers, and a long night began of streaks, halos, and comas. Towards its end, Skelton found himself sitting on an enormous expanse of gleaming wooden floor. And on it goes. What a great, great beginning to a novel. It's a great book. Easily the most famous Tom McGuane book. It's available in audiobook and as a movie, which cannot be said of Panama at this stage. So there we go. Tom McGuane, absolute genius, great guy. The Missouri Breaks, strongly recommended. If you like any of the people we've mentioned in this podcast, Hemingway, Hunter S. Thompson, Harrison Brautigan, Stephen King, Carl Hyerson, any of these people, Tom McGuane is at least on a par with all of them and ahead of many of them. He is strongly recommended. And that's it this week for Library Discoveries. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.